Hello there, GradCast listeners. Uh, just a little preface for this episode. We had some technical difficulties with our microphones in the radio studio this week, and so our guest, unfortunately, sounds a little bit quiet, so please tune your ears up a little bit. I've done my best to make things equal, but uh, I'm not a miracle worker, so um, please do enjoy the episode, but listen carefully. Claire has a lot of awesome things to say. Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Good evening, London, and welcome to another episode of GradCast Radio here at CHRW 94.9, the Society of Undergraduate Students' official radio station here at Western University. I'm your host, Eric Green, here with my co-host, Ramina Adam. And we're joined today by our guest, Claire Halstead, who's going to tell us a little bit about her PhD research in history. So, Claire, I know you can probably do a lot better job of explaining it to everybody than I can, so take it away. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, so my research just looks at British children who were evacuated to Canada in the Second World War. And that's the short version. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Could you give us the longer version? All right. So uh, in 1939, uh, war breaks out, and people in Britain were really frightened that their children were going to be, of course, bombed. So they sent them out to the, um, to the countryside. But in the spring of 1940, things got a little bit worse when uh, France was invaded by the Nazis. So this really suggested that Britain could be next, and people looked to the dominions, that would be uh, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa, uh, to kind of look after their children. So tens of thousands of Canadians really offered their homes to British children um, between the ages of 3 and 15. And so in the summer of 1940, Canada saw at least 3,800 children come to Canada's shores. So were these parents like volunteering their children to be sent overseas or were they kind of forced to have their children sent away? Overseas evacuation was uh, totally optional. Um, You had to apply and go through quite a rigorous application process. So the children had to have a formal application. They had to go through a school application where teachers had to recommend the children. They had to go through medical reviews and then they would be accepted into the evacuation program if they were seen to be fit, which would mean sort of uh, intellectually fit, uh, healthy, and um, a right match for evacuation. So there certainly was no snatching of people's children and forcing them to go overseas (laughs) to live with strangers. So now, Claire, I'm curious. Obviously, all of the children from England weren't sent overseas during the war. So what was the criteria for who was chosen or selected to go, aside from what you just discussed? It was sort of first come, first serve. Um, So we're really talking about the Children's Overseas Reception Board. Now, that was the state-organized program. um, that it It was financed by the British government in collaboration with the Dominion government. So this is what we're talking about, who was accepted. We're talking about core children because there was another uh, 1,500 who, were, who came privately, so they came through schools and things. And we could talk about that mm-hmm. in a minute. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the CORB children, um, yeah, so they went through that process. But as soon as CORB opened its doors, uh, they had something like, um, I think it was 10,000 people uh, within the first oh, few wow. weeks. And then in total, they had, I think, 200,000 applications for evacuees um, to go to all the dominions. So through that, people then would sift through them um, and choose, but they would take them also from areas that were deemed to be at risk. Um, now, when we get to my database, I can talk about um, how that's sort of helping to uncover um, 
the application process and who was actually taken? Mm -hmm. um, so who actually made, like, who made the decision to say, you know, we should probably start evacuating children because it's getting really dangerous and we might get um, airstrikes or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, who made that decision? I think it really came from the people because there's a lot of discussion uh, in from the British government that they didn't want this to actually happen. Churchill is uh, cast as saying that he doesn't want British children to leave British shores because then it will suggest that Britain can't look after its own children. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it came from the top. It really was the people um, in reaction to all the private evacuees who were allowed to go because they could pay their way. And so for the children who maybe couldn't, or the families who couldn't pay for their way, um, then, um, then that was really going to, uh, to be the, the issue there. And so the people uh, wanted to do it, the Canadians wanted to do it, and I guess it was a, a happy marriage from that point. <laughs> Um, and how were these stu uh, students, were these children who were sent overseas, were they able to stay in contact with their parents? Were they ever able to go back to Britain? Yes, so uh, the way evacuation was planned um, in correlation with the British and Canadian government was that evacuation had to be temporary. This was very much not an adoption program. They weren't allowed to keep the children. It was always understood that they would come just for the war. They obviously didn't know how long the war would last. But they would stay for the war, and then they would return. So in terms of keeping in contact with the parents, um, many children wrote weekly letters home. Um, and some of the children were quite young, so mm -hmm. I get to read letters <laughs> that uh, just sort of say, there's snow outside, oh. and in the spring we go, sk we go skating, and roller skating, um, and, uh, and things like that. Um, there was also a, uh, a radio program called Children Calling Home, where the BBC and the CBC got together and they brought children into the studio, much like we are here, and they could talk to their parents on the radio for the first time, which would have been most emotional. Um, and then sometimes they were pre-recorded and they would send them home and the children would wait to hear their parents on the air in their own uh, foster homes. That's so cute. So uh, in your experience and in your research, Claire, what was the uh, overall experience of these children here in Canada? Was it a positive one or negative? That is such a great question because um, I think a lot of people would um, tend to say in Britain, the children who were put into the British countryside, um, that they had a really negative experience. So uh, Michael Caine, the actor, well-known actor, we all know him, mm -hmm. um, he was an evacuee and uh, his story is quite a bad one. He was allegedly locked in a closet for the weekend. And so we've got that as our background, but then we have children in Canada. And from my research, I haven't found that at all. I found um, very few cases, shall I say, of any sort of um, abuse. There are situations where children need to be moved, and sometimes it's said that uh, the child doesn't fit in the family or the foster parents can't handle them anymore. So it's sort of nicer language, um, but I've not found any term, you know, cases of, of extreme abuse in that way. They were also checked in on uh, by, well, they were supposed to be, <laughs> twice a year uh, by Children's Aid Society officials, social workers, um, to prevent that. So. Overall, I think I've got a really good picture that, um, that the children were well cared for, they had food, they had access to health care, consistent education, so things that maybe they wouldn't have um, back in Britain, and uh, they got to go home, and that was, again, some troubles as well that came with that. Awesome. Well, I'm just curious, because I have siblings myself, and I'm, I'm wondering whether or not were families sent over together to the same foster homes, or would they split the children up? 
So with my database, I'm actually able to answer that for the first time. Um, so I'm able to map which homes children went to, and I can see now which families came over together. We would never be able to know that from, uh, from previous research unless you know, we happen to have a family that all talks about their experience together. So some parents did send their children or siblings over together. Sometimes one sibling would be over the age of 15 and they couldn't come, so they had to be left behind. Sometimes one sibling was rejected. Um, in one case, there was a poorly child, or one child actually that got rejected, um, and his twin brother came to Canada because uh, they thought that he was going to be too fragile, that uh, evacuation would really just disrupt him. Um, but then sometimes the child was too young. So in those instances, of course, the families would be split up in that one child would go to Canada, the other one wouldn't. But there were a lot of families that did come. Uh, there was one family of five children that all came to Canada, and they were placed into two separate homes, because it's really hard to find a home <laughs> maybe that can take five children. Five, yeah. um, but they do try to keep the siblings together. But of course, sometimes one child won't get along with the parents or the foster parents, so they have to move them. So it's a very fluid system. Um, but my research has shown that there was an attempt to keep them together, and under the understanding that this would be the best for them and would keep them stable. Through your research, were you able to um, put in contact to siblings who maybe lost contact? Like, I mean, even though they could write letters and stuff, or maybe from when they were separated into separate homes, like, did they ever lose contact? And then through your research, you were able to put them together? I haven't put together any siblings. Um, I did sort of illuminate a case. Uh, that there were that, those five um, siblings, and uh, I got an inquiry from a woman in England who was talking about three sisters. And then I got an inquiry from a woman in Toronto talking about two brothers. And so out of 3,000 children, it's kind of hard to keep all the names straight. And both of their last names were the same. And the penny finally <laughs> dropped uh, after about a week. And I realized that I was talking about the same five siblings. Oh and neither side of the family knew that they were both contacting me. So in that way, it was kind of interesting to bring them back together. Um, there was also a, a, a strange case where um, there were, I think, three sisters. And upon return, one sister just sort of went off and did her own thing in life, and they never really heard from her again. Mm -hmm. um, the family just sort of broke up in that way. Whether that's because of evacuation, we don't know. Um, but going through the case files with the, the family members sort of illuminates the troubles that she might have had in Canada and sort of suggested why she sort of withdrew. Mm -hmm. She wasn't placed in the same home, et cetera, and had some own struggles of her own. Um, so things like that come out in terms of family dynamics. <laughs> Really cool. Um, so how were you able to get in contact with these people? Like you, So you say you use the Canadian Overseas Reception Board, or CORB, um, and how were you able to gain access to their files and then able to contact the people in the database? So it's the Children's Overseas Reception Board. Children. So yes. Uh, Children. <laughs> uh, and uh, that makes sense because it's, it's in Britain. So these files are all kept at the National Archives in England. Um, and I was just going through my research, and there was, I think it was my second summer researching there, and there was one file that just said, uh, you know, CORB Canada. And so I thought, all right, I'll pull that up. And to my wonder, I found a case file for each 1,532 children. And it was just like striking gold. I felt like Billy Wonka <laughs> with the golden ticket. <laughs> and, and really, the, the database came out of that. That was my foundation. Um, and, and it's been miraculous that I have been able to get access to that. Okay, well, we keep touching on your database, and yet we haven't actually discussed it yet, so uh, why don't you go ahead and just tell us what that really means, because I have a feeling it's probably rather extensive, and the word database isn't doing it justice, so. 
it's a giant Excel file, so maybe uh, that does do it justice or not, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, so from these records, I, I just thought, hmm, you know, this, the information is, is not giving us enough. We need to put all the pieces together to really figure out what this all means. So I started putting it all in Excel files, and it includes, of course, the child's name, their CORB number, birthday, where they're from, uh, where they lived in Canada, uh, any reasons why they moved, and then it has information on schooling, health care, um, general sections, which are kind of interesting about you know, whether the children are going to stay. Um, sometimes it mentions if their parents had died or something in a bombing uh, in Britain. So uh, from that, I put a long time, put it all into my, my database. And then uh, I also thought, well, you know, this is the Corp children's story, but we still have another 1,500 children at minimum, uh, the private evacuees who we have no re uh, understanding of. So I was very fortunate that at the Library and Archives Canada, so Canada's National Archive, um, I found great sources for those children. So I found shipping records. So Canada kept great records of all the children who came in unaccompanied. So they didn't come with mothers or aunties or anything like that. Um, so I put those all into my database and I have their ships. Um, and from, from this, that size growing as well. So you mentioned that you keep track of their health records and stuff like that. Um, do you notice any similarities and maybe like are these children well now adults um are they more anxious because they were separated at such a young age from their families well the first part i'll answer um just in terms of similarities so i've been able to then compile and get sort of a national view right so i can break it down to uh the health care that, uh, that children received in Toronto or were children in uh, BC more likely to get chicken pox or something like that so really interesting statistics like that um but I can also see that there's a high rate, of course, of tonsillitis and uh, people having their adenoids out. We can expect that. Uh, measles, scarlet fever. Um, but there's a lot of cases of appendicitis, which is really strange, and it's not conclusive as to whether um, that was because of differences in food or what's really going on there. So that's, I think, an area that I need a <laughs> medical <laughs> professional to help me with. <laughs> um, and secondly, in terms of uh, lasting effects and uh, separation, we have to remember that these files only tell us about the children from 1940 to 1945, and in some instances, 1946. Okay. So at that time, the understanding of uh, mental health was different from what it is now. Um, of course, we cannot even start to get at the longer-term effects, um, but just in terms of the war as well, these mm, mental health issues were sort of used in, they were referred to a different language. So it would have been the child is nervous or a little bit anxious, or there's mm -hmm. cases of bedwetting, which is a clear sign of, of some sort of trauma going on. Um, maybe some children became difficult to handle. Sometimes this was, you know, 15 year old boys or something like that. Um, and then some children, of course, we have to remember, do go and sign up to go to the, to the army or the air force was a huge pull. So I just wanted to clarify one thing. We, we keep saying the word children, and then, like, you know, we had yes. four or five-year-old, 15-year-old. Yeah. What was the range of kids that came over? So privately, um, the youngest I've come across was three years old when they came, so they returned when they were eight, of course. Um, and then through Corb, it was five to 15. But that means that if you came when you're a 15-year-old, you're 20 when you're going home. So you may have come as a, as a youth or adolescent or a child and really gone home an adult on, in terms of, uh, you know, 18 back in the 40s. You know, you could you were married. Uh, you could go have your job. Um, you could go back and you know smoking. People uh, talk about how their parents were a bit shocked when they saw them <laughs> on the train platform wearing makeup, high heels. 
so there's this contrast of, uh, I do say children, but it sort of turns into adolescence, youth, and even adulthood in some instances. Did they have to go back? Like, if they were 20 years old when they were here, could they just be like, well, I have my whole life here, I don't want to leave, like, could they stay in Canada? Surprisingly, the Canadian government does uh, allow some of them to stay, so I've been able to tra track that as well, how many were able to stay as settlers, <laughs> which I think is a very interesting term. Uh, it's more of sort of a turn-of-the-century term, but they can stay as settlers, and some were able to stay on to finish their education, uh, particularly for university education as well. And then those who went on in the Army, they were still serving, so they didn't have to go back right away. Mm -hmm. um, and some children start to go back in, um, I'd say, the early early 1944, uh, and then 1945-1946 as well. So it's sort of, a, again, they all arrive at one time, and then they go back sort of in trickle effects, and I've been able to map that, which is really That's really cool. So some of them then in 1944 return when people think it's safe, and then they get hit with the V-1 and V-2 rockets, which is even more terrifying, arguably, mm -hmm. um, than just you know the bombings that would be happening nightly, because um, you didn't know when they were coming. They were the buzz bombs, so they would just mm -hmm. fall on you, and you'd hear the whistle, and then it would go quiet. Um, so some of them return to this, this war zone as well. Were any, so when they were being, um, I don't want to say shipped, but I guess, that's it. <laughs> when they were being shipped to Canada from Britain, um, were any of the ships that were coming to Canada, were they ever hit by, by airstrikes? Or? Yes, two were torpedoed. Um, oh. One was torpedoed and all the children survived. So oh, that, was wow. a good, uh, that was a good save, yeah. um, and it didn't halt the program. So they, you know, people got really worried about it, but they thought, okay, well, we're going to keep going on. They traveled in convoys, so they should be protected. Um, but sadly, on Friday the 13th in September um, of 1940, yeah, you couldn't make that up, no. um, a ship left Liverpool, and a few days later on the 17th, it was torpedoed off the coast of Ireland, and it was carrying 90 evacuee children, Corb children, and only 13 survived. Now, I've read the letters from the surviving children, and they're just horrific. Um, one girl goes down to rescue another little girl. She gets her up on deck after sort of climbing her way out of this metal that's all twisted in, um, and they realize that she's she's dying, and so they just put her in the water and let her go. Oh my God. So one sh one there was one lifeboat that stayed out in the ocean for I think two or three days, and the children survived miraculously with their escort. Wow. But that effectively halted evacuation, and people thought, no, we're not taking this risk anymore. Oh, so that was the end of it, that, that incident there? Pretty much, yes. Um, they, they said, we're going to, we're going to suspend our, our Corps evacuation for the winter, and a few private evacuees do trickle through in October, November, but none come in 1941 for that reason. So I'm just thinking, in, in 1940, if you're three years old, um, odds are you're still alive today. So I'm, I'm just curious, have you been able to contact people that have went through this as children and are now, you know, seniors, adult seniors that can tell you about it? Well, I've been most fortunate that uh, some of the publicity that the database has received has uncovered some of these links. So I haven't really gone searching for evacuees. Um, a little bit of, I guess, ethical things there, um, hunting people down, I try not to do. But I've been very lucky that they have contacted me. I've come into contact with uh, four evacuees that are within five kilometers of this very <laughs> room. Um, and so I've been able to speak to them, and they've told me about their experiences. Um, and then, of course, there's some in Britain still that write to me, some across Canada. And it's really fascinating to finally align their case studies, or their, sorry, their case files, or the records that I have of them in the 40s, 
into their experience now. And that's where we can sort of match up and think, hmm, okay, was that accurate? Or what happened in the space of time? And then I get the long, long dray, we call it in, in, uh, in history, sort of the long view. I get to figure out what happened between, um, you know, 1945 when they return into now. So how did the evacuation really impact their later lives? Have you heard any interesting stories from either these people who have contacted you or through the letters that you read from the children? Oh, tons of interesting stories. I think they're all interesting, though, so I'm a bit Tell biased. us a few. Yeah. When you spend four years in it, you better like <laughs> it. Um, well, uh, there's um, one man that wrote to me and said that uh, he was supposed to be on the ship, the SS City of Benares, the one that was torpedoed, but he and his brother missed their train or something, and so they, they weren't on the ship. So we get sort of stories of these encounters that you're so close to death. Um, there's also great stories, especially from the letters about life in Canada, you know, the snow and uh, the summer and going off to cottages. And uh, there was one boy who went to the circus in Toronto and write, wrote, um, uh, there were bears riding bicycles and seals playing God Save the King. And I thought that's a great <laughs> image to conjure up. Um, and I think he was telling the truth as well. <laughs> um, so we get lots of those stories as well. Mm-hmm. And schooling and friends and cinema and things like that. So, uh, and you just mentioned, you know, you've been doing this for four years, so obviously you're very passionate about it, but I just want to know, why do you feel that this is an important topic of research? So historically, uh, as I sort of mentioned at the beginning, the children who were evacuated within the countryside, they're the ones that are really remembered. We tend to forget about all the children who went to the Dominions. And as much as the children who went to the countryside were separated from their families, the ones who came to Canada had to reintegrate into a different country. They had to integrate to a different country here. They you know, got different accents. And then when they went home, they had to reintegrate into British society. They had to find their parents again. Um, but Britain had changed, and so had they. So I think that's important to sort of um, increase our awareness. But also, uh, it's very timely. As you said, these people are um, you know, entering their, their golden years. And we need to, to capture these memories uh, at just the right time. And I hope to do that in some way. Do you have any future plans for this project once this database is all complete? I'd like to make it public in some way. Um, yeah, that's a little bit uh, difficult uh, because, of course, I don't own the records. I guess technically I can open the, the Excel files, <laughs> but uh, maybe not what's in it. So hopefully in collaboration maybe with the National Archives where I got it from, um, maybe we can do something with that because I've had uh, a lot of inquiries lately about getting access to, to this database because it would be fabulous. It would be great for someone to be able to say, oh, I wonder if my aunt was an evacuee. You could just plug in their name and that's how quickly it happens. And it's really rewarding when that does happen. What about the children who were sent to, um, you mentioned Australia and South Africa? And New Zealand. And New Zealand. So do you plan on, do you think you'll ever be able to start, like, start a new database for those children? Uh, I think if I had the, the same records I had for these ones, it could be very easily done. Uh, that, again, does not include the private evacuees. Whether I want to take on that task, <laughs> I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. I think a book also needs to be written on the children who went to uh, America, because they didn't have a, a state-sponsored system, but a lot of children did go to America as well. So that's another book that needs to be written. <laughs> All right, well, um, we keep going back to the, to the whole database thing, and, and you were saying that there is, was it four people that live within, you know, five kilometers of this building? These are people that are in London now. Were they evacuated to London, or do they live here now? Great question. One did uh, actually come to London, and she returned, therefore. Um, one lived 
in Stratford during the war, and she just sort of, sort of by fluke came back to London. And then the other two, uh, who are married, I should say, um, he went to the States and she came to Canada. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that they, they got married upon return in Canada. Um, they originally went to Toronto and then Montreal, and then they came to London. So, um, And she was evacuated to BC. So it sort of fluctuates, I guess. What got you interested in this? Like, did you do your master's project on anything similar to this? What made you just even look into the, the files? I know you said you, you found them and you were like, oh, this is gold, like, I'm going to do this, but was there something that led you there? Well, I think I've been a historian since the age of four, <laughs> um, doing uh, lots of trips to England. My family is British, and I'm a British okay. citizen, so I think it's uh, in my blood in some way, and I've always had a great interest in the Second World War particularly. But I was uh, doing my master's in England, in Canterbury, at the University of Kent, and I was researching the city that was uh, that city that was bombed in 1942 as part of a cultural raid. It had no um, military significance, and, and then I was just thinking about doing a PhD and wanted a great topic, and and this sort of fell on my lap, and I realized that um, that something more needed to be said about it. But I also think it really reflects perhaps my own sense of identity or conflicted identity maybe that uh, a lot of these children return and they think, oh, am I Canadian? Am I British? Am I a bit of both? You know, maybe what am I sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's just been quite natural. It's been fun. Uh, I was very fortunate to find the, the case files. Um, but I was also fortunate to, to really see the potential in them and, and do it, I think. I didn't think I was going to for a while, and I maybe sat on them for a year, and I thought, well, you know, I've got this database, it will take a while, but um, for people to actually start doing things, I think uh, it's really rewarding sometimes. Uh, well, <clears throat> just to get this out of the way, I did my BA in history, so I find stuff like this extremely <laughs> fascinating. So I'm curious, um, when you do talk to these people, and they're remembering their time here as children, do they... Do you think that they're remembering it the way they would if they were still kids? Or are they putting an adult spin on it? Like, are we losing something in, in the fact that it has been 70 years since then? Mm -hmm. Well, firstly, I don't actually do oral interviews, so that's not the basis of my work. Because um, that kind of brings in a whole uh, ethics review problem. Um, so I will go and speak to them in terms of uh, gaining their, their photos or their letters and things like that. So their personal archives. Um, but of course you happen to talk to them and that sort of information filters into the head anyway. Um, but I think absolutely, the way that adults, um, out of no fault of their own, recall something just as we ourselves think of something that happened in our childhood, it's a retrospective glance. You know, we've got many years since and things maybe get a little bit twisted or um, maybe they get a little bit rosier, <laughs> perhaps. But uh, one of Acumi was telling me that he, um, uh, he said that he remembered something about playing this role in a play and actually he received a letter from his teacher saying oh no you didn't actually play that role someone else did um, so things like that happen um, so hopefully that's something that I can then uncover from the case files and the children's letters I can get the view of the children in the war so speaking to the fact that this is your PhD project um, you're obviously writing a dissertation on this so what kind of I mean I know it's like you're creating this database but how are you going to what kind of things are you talking about in your dissertation, which is like 300 pages long? So I talk about the foundations of CORB and how this all started. So just as we started this discussion today, mm -hmm. the debates, um, I argue that, that Canada really is um, going out on a limb here and it, d it decides to pay for all the children. Um, it has to look after all their health issues, et cetera, provide the standard of care. So I argue that. 
and then I get into um, sort of the, the, the public space and the private space. So what were their lives like within the homes, within schools? Um, how were they seen as symbols of the war? And how did they think of the war and write about the war? And then their later lives, so when they returned and what that was like. Um, so there's, yes, a lot to go into such a little piece <laughs> yep. of work. Yep. All right, well, <coughs> pardon me, <laughs> on my there. Um, so I'm just curious, you're obviously very passionate about this. What are you going to do after you graduate, when you're very successful, which I'm sure you will be? What's, what's next? Well, hopefully keep publishing on this. Um, so I really hope to turn this into a book uh, as soon as possible, because I think it's really timely. Um, I had a uh, journal article come out in the autumn on this topic. I've got a book chapter coming out in the spring sometime. Um, so that's sort of an insight into it, but I hope to continue that. And then, as I said, yeah, do some spin-off projects, because this could keep me going for a long time. And build a database, too. There's still so much more that can be built into it in future years. Will you be sending, like, could you send your book chapters or your dissertation to the people in your database? Like, do you have ways to, to contact them and be like, hey, you might be interested in this? Yeah, so I, I have sort of agreed that every time I mention them that I will at some point be able to send something to them, at least an excerpt, maybe not the whole chapter, because <laughs> that would be really expensive, um, and just say this is, this is sort of the legacy that you've, uh, you've had in, in my work, which I think I'm very honored to have. So sweet. <laughs> Do you find that the people that you are in contact with are, are like appreciative of what you're doing? Or? Uh, I think they're very receptive because if they weren't, they wouldn't contact me. <laughs> um, very true. But, uh, but yes, I think they're, they're happy. They all are also very humble. They always tell me, oh, well, my story doesn't mean anything. But it obviously does. Our story is very important. All of their stories are very important. Of course. Awesome. Okay. Well, that's all we have for you today, London. Thank you very much for tuning in to Gradcast Radio here at 94.9 CHRW. And keep it tuned. Have a good night. That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback, or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at Gradcast Radio, and look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com, and it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week.